Hello and welcome to An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. We explore the Book of Mormon with the assumption that science worked the same then as it does now and that the characters are real people with the same types of feelings and tendencies as you and me today. The views and opinions expressed here are strictly those of the narrator and should not be considered official interpretations in any way. And now An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. Welcome back, and thank you very much for joining me. Today we'll be covering 2 Nephi chapters 11 through 16. Let me talk straight for just a minute. We're in the middle of 2 Nephi, and as you can see by the number of views on this video, almost nobody reads 2 Nephi for, for fun, or watches videos about 2 Nephi for entertainment. 2 Nephi is mostly read by Sunday school teachers, seminary and institute teachers, students reading it on assignment, or someone with the goal of reading the entire Book of Mormon. But whatever the case, whatever brings you here, I'm glad to have you along. So drop a note letting me know what it is that brings you here. We ended the last video with a trivia question. What was the capital of the Assyrian Empire? The Assyrian Empire lasted for roughly a thousand years, and it had more than one capital. But the main and most important capital was Nineveh. And the location of Nineveh might surprise you. Normally when we think of Nineveh, we think of the story of Jonah. He was commanded to go and teach the people of Nineveh, but he tried to take a ship to the other end of the Mediterranean. He was thrown overboard, swallowed by a whale, and then spit out on the shore, and then he preached in Nineveh. So we assume that Nineveh is a coastal city, but Nineveh is in the modern-day city of Mosul, Iraq, however you pronounce it, about 400 miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea. So the whale didn't spit Jonah out in Nineveh. That would be like saying that a, a whale spit somebody out in Denver. It just didn't happen that way. He spat him out at least 400 miles away, and then Jonah had to travel to Nineveh. Anyway, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. It was about 300 miles north of Babylon, and the Babylonians would eventually conquer the Assyrians. Babylon also is where the brother of Jared lived with his family, but that's a story for another day. I've been using trivia questions here and there to help ease you into the geography of the region because it will be helpful in understanding Isaiah in some of the upcoming episodes. And that leads us to today's topic where we're going to be covering Isaiah. So Nephi is about to quote Isaiah starting with chapter 12 and ending with chapter 24. In chapter 11 though, he explains why he does this. In verse 2, he says he will liken the words of Isaiah unto his people. Or in other words, Isaiah's words provided Nephi with insight into his people. But his real reason for quoting Isaiah was to testify of the Savior Jesus Christ. Regarding Isaiah, starting in verse 2, he said, For he verily saw my Redeemer, even as I have seen him. And my brother Jacob also has seen him as I have seen him. Wherefore, I will send their words forth unto my children to prove unto them that my words are true. Wherefore, by the words of three, God hath said, I will establish my word. Nevertheless, God sendeth more witnesses, and he proveth all his words. Nephi wanted to establish the truth about the reality of the Savior. He continued by explaining this in verse 4. Behold, my soul delighteth in proving unto my people the truth of the coming of Christ, for for this end hath the law of Moses been given. 
And all things which have been given of God from the beginning of the world unto man are the typifying of him. That last phrase, that all things given of God from the beginning are the typifying of him, tells us a lot. Any, any scripture or commandment that God has given, for example, the law of Moses and so on, all of these typify Christ. Verse 6 says, And my soul delighteth in proving unto my people that save Christ should come, all men must perish. And he ends the chapter with this final explanation. And now I write some of the words of Isaiah, that whoso of my people shall see these words may lift up their hearts and rejoice for all men. Now these are the words, and ye may liken them unto you and unto all men. There are a few authors whose impact is so profound that they permanently affect the language in which they write. Shakespeare in English, you have Homer in Greek, Goth in German, uh, Victor Hugo in French, and so on. These writers are so influential, and their writings are so heavily taught that they form what you might call a literary anchor. So while the English language may change and evolve, an educated modern reader can still understand Shakespeare written 500 years ago. Not only do we continue to teach the writings of such authors, but their words and ideas are referenced by subsequent authors, which contributes to the longevity of their contributions. Isaiah had a similar impact on the Hebrew language. The following is from Bible Hub. It says, This book, referring to Isaiah, is universally looked upon as the greatest Old Testament manuscript as written by the greatest Old Testament prophet. In unsurpassed eloquence, Isaiah describes the greatness, grace, and glory of God, the virgin birth, dual nature, earthly life, sufferings, and resurrection of the promised Messiah. In other words, from a literary standpoint, Isaiah is the best that the Bible has to offer. Now, having said that, reading Isaiah is a bit like reading Shakespeare, where you may need help understanding some of the words or the geopolitical background and context, people could dedicate a career to understanding Isaiah, and a lot of them have. So unfortunately, we will barely have time to even begin to scratch the surface. Today we're going to cover the Isaiah chapters uh, 12 through 16, which correspond with Isaiah chapter 2 through 6 in the Old Testament. So let me give you an overview first. This might make the narrative easier to follow. In chapter 12, Isaiah has a vision of the latter days. The Lord's house will be established and people from all nations will come to learn his ways. In chapter 13, he addresses the consequences of Israel straying from the covenant path. Chapter 14 talks about a glorious future for those who remain on the covenant path. Chapter 15 is called the Song of the Vineyard and Isaiah uses a metaphor to illustrate God's relationship with Israel. And chapter 16 talks about Isaiah's call to be a prophet. That's a high-level overview of what we're going to be covering in Isaiah today. Chapter 12 includes a verse most commonly thought by members of the Restored Church of Jesus Christ to refer to the temple in Salt Lake City. They interpret the mountains of the Lord's house as the temple. Salt Lake City is located in the top of the mountains. Verse 2 and 3. And it shall come to pass in the last days when the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, 
Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Most of the other Christian writers didn't obviously reference the temple. However, I found it interesting that when I asked ChatGPT to comment on what that verse meant, it said that it was referring to a temple. I probed a little further to make sure that I hadn't biased it somehow, and I hadn't. That's, according to the language learning model, it's referring to a temple in those verses. Okay, moving on. Uh, Isaiah spent several verses talking about the fallen state of his covenant people or the people of Jacob or Israel. They, they had all prospered, but they had gone astray. Quote, everyone to his wicked ways. The next several verses in the following chapter comment about the consequences of those who stray from the covenant path. Verse 7, their land is full of silver and gold, neither is there any end of their treasures. Their land is also full of horses, neither is there any end of their chariots. Their land is also full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. He told them to be humble, lest the Lord should smite them. The day of the Lord was approaching, and the proud would be humbled when it arrived. And Isaiah gave several examples of tall and proud things that would be humbled. The cedar trees of Lebanon, the oaks of Bashan, however you pronounce it, high mountains and tall ships. Men's pride would be brought low, and only the Lord would be exalted in that day. He would abolish idols. In fact, men would take their idols of silver and gold and give them, quote, to the moles and to the bats. I assume this means that they would bury them and, and would then go into the clefts of the, the rocks, or in other words, find caves in which to hide, continuing into chapter 13. This chapter describes how God will take everything from Israel. He'll take their bread and water. He'll remove the useful members of their society. The city and the land will be made desolate. Inept or incompetent leaders, symbolized by babes or children, will govern them, and they will be so utterly broken that they will reach out to others for food, only to be denied help because the others don't have bread or food or clothing either. Jerusalem will be altogether ruined. Verse 9. The show of their countenance doth witness against them, and doth declare their sin to be even as Sodom, and they cannot hide it. Woe unto their souls, for they have rewarded evil unto themselves. So what does that mean, doth declare their sin to be even as Sodom? Bible commentary says that, quote, as Sodom means that they make no attempt whatsoever to hide their sins, but rather they glory in them. The remaining verses talk about the pride, immorality, materialism of the women of Judah, walking with wanton eyes and outstretched necks before the Lord humbles them and takes their opulence away. The last two verses of chapter 13 talked about men dying by the sword, and as a result, chapter 14 begins with the women so outnumbering the men that most of them can't find husbands. Verse 1, And in that day seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by thy name to take away our reproach. In other words, they offer to provide for themselves if only a man will take the reproach of being single and childless from them. Verse 2, In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, the fruit of the earth excellent and comely to them that are escaped of Israel. When it says, in that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, they're saying that in that day the promise of the Savior, the branch of the Lord, 
will appear especially attractive to those who have survived the desolation. Isaiah next described very favorable conditions, millennial conditions per the chapter heading, where the Lord will be visibly among his people as he was during the Exodus. Verses 4, 5, and 6. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment, by the spirit of burning, and the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night, for upon all the glory of Zion shall be a defense. And there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat and for a place of refuge and a covert from storm and from rain. Okay, then we move to chapter 15. According to some commentaries, this chapter is a song and from a poetic standpoint, one of the most beautiful chapters in the book of Isaiah. It begins with the prophet singing what appears to be a song about his beloved or friend who had an unfortunate experience with his vineyard. Verses 1 and 2 describe his friend's efforts to create a vineyard. But despite these efforts, clearing away stones, planting his vineyard with the choicest vines, and building a tower in the middle of it, it brings forth wild, that is, sour or thorny, grapes. And in verses 3 and 4, he asks, what more could I have done? Then in verses 5 and 6, he says he will break down the hedge and let the garden be trampled, He's no longer going to do any pruning, but he'll let briars overtake it and stop the rain from falling. So the Cambridge Bible for schools and colleges describes the chapter this way, referring to Isaiah's manner of presentation. One of the finest exhibitions of rhetorical skill and power which the book contains. The prophet appears in the guise of a minstrel before the assemblage of his countrymen and proceeds to recite the unfortunate experience of a, finger quote, friend, of his with his vineyard. The simple story, told in light popular verse, disarms the suspicions of the crowd, and the singer, having secured their sympathy, demands a verdict on the course which a man might be expected to pursue with so refractory a vineyard as this. The answer was so obvious that the people, like our Lord's hearers on a similar occasion in Matthew 21:41, that the people had practically ascended to their own condemnation before they clearly perceive the drift of the discourse. But from this point onwards, the parable becomes more and more transparent till at last the prophet, with a sudden change of rhythm, Isaiah 5 and 6, throws off all disguise and drives home the lesson of the whole in the crashing line of Isaiah 5, 7. In other words, he introduces it as a story, wins over the people, and once he's won them over, he shows them that it's actually them that he's condemning. Then Isaiah spends the rest of the chapter describing the woes that will fall upon Israel. In verse 26, he says, He will lift up an ensign to the nations from afar. This ensign, or flag, summons a tireless army, which carries its captive prey away to safety. Commentators from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints had a lot to say about this ensign to the nations, describing the restoration and gathering of Israel, while those who were not members of the church had very little to say about it. Chapter 16 will be very brief here. In summary, this chapter tells of Isaiah's call to be a prophet. Isaiah felt unworthy. Quote, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It seems to me that he's saying, You have no idea what burden I have to bear. 
I'm a sinful man living among sinful people, and yet I've seen the Savior. A seraph took a live coal from the altar, put it in his mouth, and told him his sin was purged. He was called to teach. For how long? Until the cities are laid waste and the land is desolate. And that's where we will end it for today. So hopefully this was helpful in at least giving you an overview of what these chapters of Isaiah and 2 Nephi are talking about. This week's trivia question may be an easy one, or maybe not. Here goes. King Solomon died around 931 BC. About 10 years later, the kingdom of Israel was split into two nations. What were the two nations called? So after the kingdom of Israel split into two smaller nations, what were those two nations called? If you know, tell me in the comments. Either way, click the like button if you found this helpful. And we will see you next time.